Well, good morning, Reconcile. How are you guys feeling this morning? Yeah. All right, good. Y'all talking to me. That's a good thing. I, I had to talk to some middle school and high school kids this week, and I was like, how y'all feeling this morning? They're like, so that's why I need y'all to talk to me, make up for the middle school kids, because they looked at me like I was crazy. Don't worry. I might say some things that sound crazy, but it's okay. Um, it's a privilege and an honor to be with you. Like Will told you, I'm planting a church in Columbia, South Carolina. We're in the process of planting a church called City of Refuge in the Eau Claire community. Um, for those who may be a little bit familiar with Columbia, we're in the back door of CIU, Columbia International University. Um, if you were to go on campus, it looks night and day from our neighborhood. Um, very similar to this context, a very low-income area, very... Uh, just a struggling area where we have churches in the neighborhood that's not made of people that live in the neighborhood. So the Lord kind of broke our hearts to be intentional about being contextualized for the neighborhood, living in the neighborhood, living amongst the people of the neighborhood, building a church and, 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 and raising up people, raising up disciples that look like the neighborhood. So that's what we're doing. That's a little bit about me. But I am such, so honored to be jumping into your uh, sermon series today. And Book of John, Will had this fun idea to give me one of the most weird stories in the book of John. So today we'll be in chapter two of the book of John, which is the famous story of Jesus turning water into wine. I mean, yes, water into wine. If you will, read with me chapter two of the book of John. If you don't have a Bible, they do have Bibles on the edge of the chair. Um, and I love it. It's the same translation I'll be reading from today. So if you don't have a Bible, please take one home. I think it's a free gift, freely given. And it reads, chapter 2, book of John. On the third day, a wedding took place in Canaan of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told them, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with me, with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained tw 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the, water with, fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, whoever sets out the fine wine, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first sign of his, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, you are such a good God. You are a God that sits high, that sits above all of creation. And you have made everything to sing your praises, to sing of your glorious name. We long for the wedding that will take place one day. Where heaven and earth will meet and you will be 
our groom and we will be your bride, perfect, unblemished, welcomed into your household, able to sit at your feet, to be your people and you be our God. Father, I pray today that your word stands strong, that we see you new today, that you open our eyes. I pray that the words are clear today, Father, that we see you for who you are. You are such a great miracle worker. You are such a good father. You are such a good Lord. You love us. Even in the things that might seem minuscule, you love us. So, Father, meet us here today. Let your Holy Spirit reign in this place. Let it fill your manservant today. Let me decrease and you increase in me today, Father. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, about two years ago, I went to a wedding. Now, I don't usually talk bad about weddings, but this was probably one of the worst experiences at a wedding I ever had. And I was one of the groomsmen. So I'm showing up to the wedding. Um, a, a little bit about Columbia's weather. It's unpredictable a lot of times. So in the middle of October, it's 100 degrees, and this is an outside wedding. I'm in a three-piece tuxedo. You know, we as the groomsmen had to be there five hours before the wedding started. There was just this little cabbage, uh, this little cottage that uh, that. Everybody had to go into to use the bathroom, but this is also where the, wet, the, the bride and all of the bride's ladies had to get dressed. So the men were not welcomed in. So 100 degrees, we're standing outside, melting, literally. Then the, uh, the lady who orchestrated the whole wedding, the wedding planner, she was just a nightmare. So the groomsmen became free hands, honestly. So when the tables need to be set up, we were setting up tables. When the chairs need to be set up, we were setting up chairs. And we had to stay outside in 100 degree weather, whole time, but don't take your suit off because we don't want it to get dirty. And I was like, why did I sign up for this? First of all, do my friends love me? And to make it even worse, after all this happened, right before the, the ceremony, it starts raining. All the chairs outside. As a matter of fact, we were standing out there when it started raining. So we're standing there, and it starts raining. And at this point, I'm like, you know what? I'm not moving. So I'm soaking wet. I'm upset because I've been outside all day. I honestly want to choke this wedding planner. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and finally, they said, hold on. We got to wait till the rain passed. So everybody runs back to the cottage, get around this little under, undertone of the cottage, there's a little, some, little patio. It, like, it was not enough room for everybody. After the rain passed, the wedding planner says, all right, groomsmen, I need y'all to go wipe the chairs down. <laughs> After everything, now we're wiping down chairs. All the guests are waiting for us to finish wiping down the chairs. <laughs> um, at this point... I <laughs> reconsidering my friendships, like, like this guy. I, I, I was like James. I'm sorry. Um, this better be your first and last wedding. <laughs> if y'all ever get re, you know, do the remarriage or anything, I don't want to be a groomsman. Leave me alone. I'll be in the audience. It's a terrible wedding event. Terrible. 
yet through it all, it symbolized something so beautiful and so wonderful that I might be dumb enough to do it again if he asked me. Have you ever been in a bad wedding? Sorry, if you haven't, praise God. If you have, well, it was only one day, right? Well, today in our text, we find Jesus at a wedding. And it's actually a beautiful thing that Jesus is at a wedding. It's kind of ironic. I, I, I kind of call it the, the subtle sign of the new covenant. Jesus shows up of all things to show off who he is for the first time. This is his very first miracle. He's at a wedding. He's at a wedding. And, and it's kind of, it's almost like it's a subtle hint of what the gospel is promising. In Revelation 21, verse 1 through 2, we hear about the new heavens and new earths coming to earth, and we see an unblemished bride being met by her groom. The first miracle is at a wedding, almost symbolizing what Jesus is promising is going to happen. But at this wedding, it seems that things aren't working like it's supposed to. Now, it starts off in verse 1, saying, On the third day, a wedding took place in Canaan of Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So, a lot of theologians kind of argue with this, but it seems like this is actually either the sixth or seventh day. So, when it says the third day, it's actually talking about the third day from when he talked to Nathaniel in chapter 1. Because this is the same hometown that Nathaniel came from. So this is where he calls his last disciple, and now three days later, they had a wedding. So he'd been in the city for this whole time, hanging out with Nathaniel, hanging out with his disciples, and he's coming to a wedding. And on the seventh day of all things, which means it's representing a new covenant has come. A new time frame has come. A new, a new week has started, and the new week has started, and, the Jesus, and Jesus is about to start his first sign. He's about to show the first sign. So what happened? Well, when Jesus was at the wedding, um, the wine ran out. So the way the Jewish customs were set up, the weddings during that time, they lasted for seven days. These were big festivals and the whole city was, the whole city, the whole town was invited to the wedding. They were really big deals. Matter of fact, you know how I was talking about how bad my friend's wedding was? If you had a bad wedding those times, you could actually get sued. That's how much, how big of a deal it was. So if you come to a wedding and they run out of food or they run out of wine, that's a bad sign showing that the groom can't actually take care of his bride. So the wine runs out. And it kind of sounds like almost the first day of the wedding the wine runs out. This is a big deal. And Mary walks up. She knows exactly who to go talk to. A lot of scholars debate. It sounds like it, it, Mary might have been one of the people that helped plan the wedding. So it was really a big deal for her because this is a bad sign showing that she doesn't plan things well. Again, that's up for debate. But a lot of scholars believe that she might have been the one, one of the people that helped plan out the wedding. So when the wine runs out, what are we going to do? <clears throat> This looks bad on the family. This looks bad on the groom. Like, the groom could literally get a lawsuit put against him. She knew the one person she could turn to, her son. Her son, someone who was known as being resourceful. Now, he hadn't shown off any miracles yet, according to the text. 
because this is literally his first miracle. But still, she knew he was somebody who was resourceful, somebody she could rely on, somebody she could bring her concerns to, and he would respond. So she goes up, and she tells Jesus, they don't have any wine. They don't have any wine. Simple thing. They don't have any wine. Do y'all feel like y'all could come up to Jesus and for the simple thing say, I don't have enough to pay this bill. Things are going wrong. Something's wrong. The simple things, little things. Do y'all feel like that's something important enough to bring to Jesus? Better question is, do you believe Jesus will actually listen to your response? Listen to your requests. Now, Jesus' response was something that's a little comical, depending on how you, how you read it. He said, what that got to do with you and me? Woman. How many of y'all actually call your mama woman? But see, I, I have nobody. <laughs> so if we read it in our culture, we say, that sounds kind of disrespectful, Jesus. Like, you kind of, wait a minute, cuz, wait. Like, you talking to your mama like that. <laughs> but see, during that day, no, no, no. He wasn't being disrespectful. He wasn't talking bad to his mama. It was, it, it, it's almost kind of the, the, the same undertone of, what does that have to do with me, my lady? Like, what does that have to do? I, when, I, when me and my mom on the phone, I call my mom Red Lady. So when I pick up the phone, I'm like, hey, Red Lady, what's going on? It's the same kind of relational value, my lady. What does that have to do with me and you? He said, my hour has not come yet. So here we have Jesus starting the new covenant, starting the start of his miracles, his signs of who he is. And he's like, my hour hasn't come yet. It's not time for me to reveal to everybody who I am. It's not time for me to show off yet. If I haven't actually told you the name of the sermon, I think I didn't. I might have missed it. And I would wrestle with the name. It was called the humble show off. This is a humble show off of who Jesus is. It's like, it's not my time yet. To, to, to do anything miraculous for everybody to see. Yet, Jesus, yet Mary still trusted that Jesus would step in, that Jesus would respond. And, and I love how it's kind of written, because it seems like she kind of blows off what he said. Because she was pretty, pers- it, it, it didn't even seem like she was persistent. She just believed he would do something. So she said, do whatever he tells you. Talk to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. I think sometimes when we pray, we think Jesus, Jesus doesn't listen to us. He does, kind of just blows off our prayers. He doesn't, he doesn't, we think he doesn't have time for us. I know sometimes when I have, oh, earpiece. Sometimes when I have conversations, oh, there we go. How long? I'm sorry. Technical malfunction, this is me, not y'all. Um, sometimes when I have conversations with those who've been walking with the Lord for a while, they said, I feel like the Lord gets tired of me. He doesn't hear me when I come to him with my concerns. He doesn't, when, whenever I pray, I, I feel like the Lord is like, you again? But in this passage, that's not how Mary sees Jesus' response to her. If anything, she prays with full confidence and faith that he cares enough that he's going to intervene. For you, I think you need to pray with full confidence that Jesus hears your prayers. 
even those times when you're fed up with you, he's not fed up with you. He's not concerned about you coming to him. This is an opportunity for him to kind of show off in a sense. I just want you to pray with full confidence and belief. If it's in his will, he's going to respond. And if it's not like his will, he'll change your will to pray his will for your life. So she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. So then it goes to, it's like Jesus almost points. It shows, now there was six stone water jars that had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 to 30 gallons of water. So these were massive, massive stone jars. Matter of fact, the way they kind of described her, they were made out of dung, cow dung and dirt. So they were massive rock jars that you really couldn't pick up. You couldn't just carry that around. And then it talks about what it was used for. Jewish purification, which means once you put water in it, everything that touched it was going to contaminate the inside of this. He was going to, it was going to make these vessels unclean. It was going to make these vessels something that's actually not supposed to be used anymore for anything outside of cleaning yourself. What does Jesus do? He does something that's just still kind of like, he says, you see them unclean vessels over there? Filling up with water. And I'm going to put something clean in it. It's almost like he's pointing back to Ezekiel 36, verse 26, when it says, I will give you a new heart. I will clean the inside of you. The outside might still be full and messy, but I'm going to clean the inside, knowing that the inside will clean everything around it. Jesus points to unclean vessels and he puts new life in it. He puts something new in it. He puts something clean in it. He puts something, the best of, in it. He puts new wine in it. Don't you know that's what Jesus is doing with your life? Don't you know that's what he's doing with you? All of us are unclean people. Isaiah says it best. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. I am filthy. Yet Jesus is stepping in and cleaning us from the inside out transforming us from the inside out. He's putting a new wine in us. His blessed Holy Spirit. All those who are believing, he's doing that. He's changing us. I, I have this joke I tell people. I say, we, don't, we look at sanctification a lot of times, and we don't realize how to judge sanctification. We think it goes from, a person goes from like, ex-drug dealer to now they're deacon in the church, but really it goes from ex-drug dealer to, all right, they just started stop selling drugs maybe two weeks ago <laughs> to, all right, they used to be known as somebody who would probably cut you if they got in a fight with you. Now they're somebody who kind of cuss you out. Like, this is sanctification happening. The Lord is taking steps. He is bringing this person and making them clean. He is changing them, but they don't look that good on the outside yet. They don't look fulfilled yet. They don't look like the new vessel, but he's changing. This is what the Holy Spirit does to us. 
That's what the Holy Spirit does. So he's delivering us to make us new and filling us with this new wine. So he tells them, fill the jars with water, which usually, uh, throughout the book of John, the water usually represents a spirit. He uses water to, to, to explain what it means to have new life, a spiritual cleansing. He talks to the lady at the well in chapter 4 when he tells her, he said, hey, you come to this well because you're thirsty. I offer a water that would never stop flowing. I offer my spirit. So he says, fill this jar with water. So they filled it to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out of it and take it to the headmaster. So now he's saying, take the water that was just put in this unclean vessel and take it to the person who's over the whole show and let them see what's happening. Let them drink from it. Let them taste it. The headmaster says, when the headmaster tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. He didn't even know where it came from. He's like, where y'all find wine? We was almost out. How did you find water? But the servants knew. And he called a groom over. He said, hey, man, you holding out? Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Usually we want the, the stuff that tastes good. And then after people had a, have been drinking a little bit, now... Before we go a little further, let me explain wine in this context and drinking. I want to make sure we don't leave that stone unturned because I've heard a lot of people made the argument, hey, I can drink and get drunk because Jesus turned water into wine. That's not what this passage is talking about. <laughs> That's why I said let me, let's, let's do some groundwork real quick before we go any further because it does talk about drunk, which would better translate as drink their fill. Not being drunk as in in a stupor, but drank as in full, a fillness. So, the water during that time was not as strong as the, I mean, wine during that time was not as strong as the alcohol we have today. Matter of fact, it was almost like a watered-down beer. And wine during that time represented prosperity and peace and wealth and just, it was just a, a good thing. It was like, it was like going to your favorite restaurant and having sweet tea. You know, they got the good sweet tea. Going to Chick-fil-A and have a Chick-fil-A sweet tea or Chick-fil-A lemonade, you know, the good stuff. The frosted lemonade, she said that. <laughs> it was the good drinks. It was a, a drink we really loved and enjoyed. And it ain't like they had sodas back there either. So they couldn't buy a Coke. So they had water or they had wine that helped a lot of times their digestive system, it helped keep their blood clean. It was something that they drank on a regular basis, but they didn't get drunk. The Lord, the Bible speaks very clearly about drunkenness. It says fools get drunk. So now at this wedding feast, Jesus turning water into wine, it wasn't so everybody could get tipsy. Yeah, everybody in the club getting tipsy. We ain't doing that. Um, <laughs> But him turning water into wine was to make sure that the festivities and the prosperity and honestly to give him hope. Give him a future hope. And he didn't just turn it into any kind of wine. The headmaster was surprised at how good this wine was. He was like, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. 
He did all that. And this is the crazy thing I find about this, this, this whole passage, the whole signs that's being shown. Because from chapter 2 all the way up to chapter 12, those are the books of the signs. This is Jesus just showing off his signs of who he is. Kind of giving us a reason why it's almost our fault if we don't believe. Matter of fact, it is our fault if we don't believe. Because he's shown off. He's been showing off this whole time. Saying, hey, you have no reason to not believe because look what I've been doing. Look what I've been doing. Look, exhibit A. Exhibit B. Exhibit B through C. Through Z. He's been showing off his signs to say, I am who I say I am. And if I wasn't, why would I say I'm Eminem? Anyway. Um, <laughs> and then from chapter 13 on to when he's going to the cross and saying, now this is Jesus being glorified. The cross was the glorification of Jesus being lifted up for all men to see and taking our sins. But at this time, this first miracle, he was showing a sign, but he wasn't even making a big deal about it. The, the head waiter was like, yo, y'all, we holding out? Why did he do this? Why did he do this? It says in verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He did a, a sign in a public, a public miracle, I mean a private miracle in a public gathering. He did this so he could reveal his glory and so his disciples could believe. Back in chapter 1, I think Will preached it last week, um, Nathan was like, and Jesus said, hey, I saw you. You were hanging out in the trees, right? And Nathan was like, Rabbi, you really are who you say you are. He was like, hey, wait, wait. That, just because I told you who you are? I mean, just because I saw, I, said I saw you under the fig tree? He said, truly I tell you, you will see heavens open up. And the angels of God are sending and descending on the man, Son of Man. He was like, you're going to see greater miracles. But at that point, he hadn't shown off any miracle yet. But this first story wasn't even to show off publicly. It was just to show off to the few so that they could turn around and go tell everybody publicly of what they saw. So for you, he's doing subtle little things in your life, showing off his glory just for you to believe. So you could turn around and go tell everybody else, this is who you should believe. Let me tell you about what he's done in my life. Let me show you what I've seen him do, how he showed up. When I came to him with my concerns and I prayed, he showed up. I remember uh, two years ago, two, three years ago, three, yeah, three years ago, sorry. Um, I had just lost a job, car went down. I was pastoring a church for free. If you ever want a fun story, I'll tell you about that. And I'm riding a bus, and I just start a new job. And I just remember saying, God, I can't. Come on, man. What's going on? Like, I'm serving you. I'm struggling right now. This, he did something very private in my life. He put it on two friends of our heart. And they said, hey, we got three cars. Here's the keys. Take it. And they gave us a free car. That wasn't something he did spectacular for everybody to see. He did that privately so I could see it. And he was like, now that you see how good I am to you, you should tell everybody else how good I can be to them. 
for you who were once unclean, know how broken jacked up you was. If he's been showing off in your heart, now it's an opportunity to go tell everybody else how he could show off in their life. See, Jesus is the only one who has the ability to show off how good he is. Yet he doesn't have to. He proves in this story. He doesn't have to show off his glory, but yet he's doing it because he wants the few to believe. He doesn't have to listen to Mary's request, but he's doing it because he wants her to believe, and he wants Nathaniel to believe, and he's doing want Peter to believe, and the other few disciples he, disciples. he wants them to believe. The servants that have no name in the Bible, he wants them to believe. It's a public function. Let's, let's think, if it's a small town, I think Canaan was a very small town, probably a population of about 1,500. I mean, all of Canaan is there. Yeah, he only revealed himself to about six, maybe. But those six go on later on, and they tell the world about him. Has he been revealing himself in your life privately, quietly? And if he has, are you willing to go tell everybody else? Has he given you the new wine? Has he filled you with the Spirit? Has he given you the realization of, yo, I'm a sinner. There's no way I can come before the Father. No way that the Father will hear my prayers unless somebody makes me clean and able to come into his presence. See, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus does. That's, that's what Jesus did. That's what he does later on in John. He does all of these great signs just so the few will believe who he is and what he's about to do. And then later on, he did exactly what he came to do. He took the weight of sin on his shoulders, the weight that we could not carry, the concerns that we could not carry. He took the full weight of it, willingly went to a cross, was crucified, literally suffocating on the cross, feeling the full weight of man's sin. He did that as a big sign of who he is. He's the only one that can make us right. He's the only one that can make us clean. He's the only one that can give us the new wine. But then when he went in the grave, he didn't stay dead because he's the only one that's God. God got back up and our sins stayed there. And he said, every man who believes, every woman who believes, every child who believes, I now live through them. I live in them, they are full of the new wine. They are filled with the water that would never, never stop overflowing. They are filled. I've done this for you. Now go tell everybody about it. Do you believe that's what he's done for you today? Do you believe that's what he's done for you, that he's cleaned up an unclean vessel, that he's filled it with a new wine, that he has done these great things in anticipation for this great wedding that's coming? He's done a private work in your life so you could tell everybody publicly. If you don't believe he's done that for you today, today is the day you can believe this thing. Just today is the day that he can work on your heart and say, I'll give you a new heart like it says in Ezekiel. And when he gives you a new heart and fills you, then you will be one of those servants who's at the wedding telling everybody about his greatness. You'll be one of the people who's welcome to the table as a family member. Let's go to the Lord.
Father, I pray that's what you're doing in all of our hearts today. I, I pray that's what you are doing in our minds, in our hearts, in our, in our life. You are showing off your glory privately so we could tell everybody publicly about you. You are meeting us where we're at. You're giving us a new heart. And for those who already have your spirit, that it's overflowing, that we're so excited to tell everyone else about it. Jesus, I pray today that your word was spoken clearly. That if people needed to hear exactly what they needed to hear, their hearts were changed, that those who were far off were drawn to yourself. And that one day we will all sit around the great banquet, praising your name as family. See your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.